Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. From the Boise Reformation Conference last weekend, here's Pastor Mark Jones speaking on our obedience to Christ. The next point I want to discuss is something that I think will help us then to understand the value of our obedience and how it is actually possible. There are uh, two Latin phrases. I don't want to get bogged down upon these things. And usually it's never a good idea to quote Latin or Greek or anything uh, in a sermon. And I'll call this a lecture, which will allow me to do so. But there's a... A phrase uh, and, and a word, acceptilatio, which is uh, a phrase that's used to describe a partial payment. And in theological language, this partial payment is something that God will accept. And there was a big debate between the Arminians and the Reformed over the doctrine of justification at the Synod of Dort. And, and, and as you look at the history, it's clear that the Arminians typically have a different doctrine of justification than the Reformed. And, and this term became crucial in that debate. And I won't get into it, but just so that you understand that acceptolatio basically means a partial payment. It is not complete, but God accepts it nevertheless, even though it is a partial payment. Some would say insufficient payment. But then there's another term, acceptatio, which is speaking about a full and complete payment. And when you look at Christ's death on the cross, when you look at his obedience, you would say that it is acceptatio, it is a full and complete payment. That God looks upon it as what it really is, perfect Now, what ends up happening, I think, is that some Christians understand these ideas, maybe not the actual Latin words, and they understand that their obedience, for it to be true obedience, has to be a full and complete payment, or it is not obedience at all. And this leads them to the conclusion that really, anything that they do, anything that they say, is really just filthy rags. Ah, I can't obey God. I've still got sin in my very being. What's the point? It's filthy rags. And if you look at the context of Isaiah 64, you'll find that their works became like filthy rags or menstrual cloth in the original Hebrew because they had stopped being good works. They had stopped being what was true obedience to God and became mere symbols and ceremonies. But we have many Christians today who live within this constant realm whereby, for whatever reason, they want to look at their obedience or lack thereof in a level whereby 
It's worthless. It's, it's dung upon a hill. And the question we have to ask ourselves is whether the New Testament specifically allows us to get away with such an understanding of our obedience to Christ. And there are a number of tests that we can apply to this. The first thing for us to understand is this. Who are we? And based upon what I said last night, we are in union with Jesus Christ. We come to the conclusion that we are children of God. God is our Father. And that makes all the difference in the world. I have uh, four children and I have twin boys and for one of their projects at school, and uh, you will know if your children go to school, Christian school, public school, home school. Usually the homeschoolers uh, aren't as obsessive about this as the schools my kids went to. But, you know, the boys are always coming home in their early years with artwork. And not being artists, uh, we don't thrive in this realm. <laughs> but I have twin boys who are very different uh, they're both nine now, but I think when they did this, they were about five or six. And they were to find little rocks on the school playground that they could then glue to a piece of paper that would reflect their family. So the one twin, there are six of us, there are two bigger rocks, and of course the daddy is the biggest rock. I liked that. I'm the big rock. My wife also liked the fact that she wasn't the big rock. Uh, and so there's the two bigger rocks and then there's the sister she's the, she's the eldest she's the next biggest rock and then there's the older brother and then there's the twins and they both roughly get the same small rock and, and my one twin brings this home and, and you know it's, it's not perfect but there it is for me and uh, there's a a blackboard behind it, and it uh, says, Dad, uh, you rock, and a uh, very nice uh, piece of art. Now, I've been to Paris, I've been to the Louvre, I've seen the Mona Lisa, I've, I've seen true pieces of what we would say perfection. I've seen perfection as far as we're able to say that. Leonardo da Vinci's work. And I've seen my son paste some rocks onto a blackboard, and also another son onto some piece of paper. And my other twin boy, actually, well, he obviously is a bit smarter than his twin brother because he only glued two rocks to the piece of paper, one daddy rock, and he was the other rock, and he left off the rest of the family members. <laughs> that was sufficient. Now, you see, the point is, this was imperfect artwork, I'm telling you. I could still see some of the glue under the rock because they hadn't properly, you know, used the right amount of glue. The rocks, they're not the most beautiful rocks you've ever seen. And, and you could go on and on and on about how the artwork of my children is really lacking. And yet, how do you think I viewed the artwork? Do you think my two boys came to me, gave me that, and I says, oh, this is rubbish, and tossed it into the garbage and told them to go back and do it again? The point is, they did something imperfect, but it was out of love for me, gave it to me. Do you not think as their father, I'm going to accept it? 
It's still hanging up in my bathroom. Now, if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? You can take that principle and say, if we, being evil, know how to accept imperfection from our children, but nevertheless, sincere obedience, sincere love, albeit imperfect, how much more will our Father in Heaven accept sincere, albeit imperfect obedience from His children? I'll quote the Westminster Confession just to make sure that what I'm saying is orthodox. And there's a section on good works in chapter 16. And the crucial aspect of what they say is that being accepted through Christ, because for any work to be acceptable to God, we must become pleasing to God in who we are, which takes place through union with Christ. Being accepted through Christ, our good works are accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. They understood perfectly well that when we offer obedience to God, it's mixed with many imperfections. Nonetheless, but that He, that is the Father, looking upon them in His Son is pleased to accept. And the next few words are really quite astounding. He's pleased to accept these good works and reward that which is sincere. God not only accepts our good works, but He rewards them. And I'll get to that a little bit later. But notice, that which is sincere, not that which is perfect although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Because we mustn't be deluded about the fact that our obedience is really only small beginnings, that it really is imperfect, that there is sin mixed in with everything that we do, and nevertheless, as children of God, God accepts that which is sincere. So, there's the sort of second framework for you. The glory of Christ is the whole point of this. But that we being accepted in Christ are able to actually offer obedience to Christ that the Father is pleased to accept despite our imperfections. Now, here's a question and you can answer this in the quietness of your heart. There's an a, a article I read a little bit maybe a few months ago, and it was a pastor saying what he would not want said at his funeral. And you can imagine there are a whole host of things you would not want said at your funeral. But one of the things that he didn't want said at his funeral were the words, he was a good man. Don't say at my funeral, he was a good man. And that sounds, on the surface, like an appropriately pious thing to say. He was a sinner, would be what this gentleman was trying to argue. Now, of course, that is true. But is it necessarily wrong to say 
he was a good man at the funeral of a Christian. And we have to again turn to the scriptures to say, well, what does God actually say about his people? Not what do you think you should say about yourself in your pretended humility about yourself. But what does God's Word actually say? Well, there's a number of places. There's the one parable of the, the, the seed that is thrown into different types of, of soil and ground. And, and Jesus says, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the Word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. If you're a Christian here who has received the Word in the type of soil that lasts, in the type of soil that bears fruit in keeping with repentance, it is seed that has fallen into what? An honest and good heart. I didn't say that. That's what Christ himself said about those who receive the Word. You say, well... Parables, you must be very careful, Pastor Mark, when you talk about parables, and we mustn't draw any rash and wild conclusions. Fine. But Paul's writing to the Romans in chapter 15, and he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. Why? Because you are justified by faith? Yeah, he's satisfied about that. Because one day you're going to be glorified? Yes, I imagine he's satisfied about that. He's expressed that much. But in chapter 15, verse 14, he says, I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, because you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. What is he saying about these Christians? They're filled with goodness. And they accepted that back then. And there are Christians today who simply are not willing to accept that that is true of them because when you accept that that is true of you, guess what? You might just actually have to live in a way that's been described of who you are. If you're filled with goodness, how does one live who's filled with goodness? But if you're filled with purely badness, then you can keep on living in the way where you are disobeying Christ and God and your fellow man. 